This podcast is brain powered by the University of Sydney. We are controlling transmission. Sleek Geeks, Dr. Carl, and Adam Spencer. Yes, welcome to the Sleek Geeks podcast for this week with myself, Adam Spencer, and Dr. Dr. Young Lovey Carl. Give him give give your full name. Carl Sven Wojtek Saskonkovit Maciek Kuschelnitsky, or as we say in Australia, Wheelbarrow. <laughs> this week's Sleek Geeks podcast is brought to you by the number seven. Recently confirmed in a massive survey, I think for The Guardian in the UK, Dr. Carl, oh. thousands of people, they asked thousands of people, what's your favourite number or your lucky number or your most popular number? And the most popular choice was seven. Why? Seven in surveys just seems to come up. Some people think of it as a lucky seven. For some, it's big enough to have a little bit of mystery about it. There's seven days in the week. But in general, when you ask a group of people for their favourite or lucky number, the most popular choice will be the number seven, which is why I describe seven as probably a bit overrated for mine. Maybe I'm just getting bitter and grumpy. Maybe, Carl, I'm, maybe, I'm, maybe I'm plummeting into a midlife crisis. Ah, well, does it exist or doesn't it? Good question. Uh, Sigmund, I hope you've got an answer. Kind of. Sigmund Freud thought that when you got into middle age, you'd mm-hmm. be driven by fears of your impending death, something mm-hmm. you couldn't think of as a teenager. Carl Jung, he thought middle age was a time for self-awareness and self-actualization where you would rock it onto better things. And Eric Erickson, nice name for a psychologist. Nice. He talked about life stages, and he said in the so-called middle age, you're in generativity versus stagnation. So on one hand, you're thinking about stuff for future generations, and the other part you're thinking, oh, God, man, I'm rude, I can't even help myself. Mm. And then by the time you get to 1965, Elliot Jacques says, well, that's when you realise your own mortality. And going to the highest philosopher of all, Dr. Carl in Neighbours, he went through a midlife crisis and uh, started to change his look and started dating younger women. Mm. So sad. There's, there's a whole lot of things that happen around then. You're either getting weaker, you got your death of your parents, menopause in women, underemployment or unemployed at all, um, hating your job, end of reproductive times. In general, when we say the midlife crisis... Are people talking what, between what, 45 and 55? Is there a concept of when the age of midlife is? Is that clearly defined? No. I remember going to a Judith Lucy show mm. and she was talking about how she, there was a birthday party for her grandmother and she said, went up to Granny and said, how are you feeling, Granny? And she said, I'm just waiting to die. And she was 52. There you go. <laughs> So midlife varies. Okay. Uh, so it, it depends on the society. So I, I'm guessing anything between 30 and 60, depending on your health, mm. vague thing. And so you try to fix this loss of body image and success of younger people and all these unfilled goals by buying a gold chain or dumping the one who loves you and going for somebody you've just mm. met who is younger and taking alcohol or maybe even feeling remorse for all your wrongs. And we used to think back in 1970, 1980, that yes, the midlife crisis really existed and yes, 70 to 80% of all psychological studies showed that there was a midlife crisis. If you wanted people and said, are you satisfied with your life? There'd be a definite you around the middle age whenever that was. Mm-hmm. in the 1990s, they didn't find it. Oh. No, I know, a different bunch of questions, different psychologists, and now we're thinking, well, maybe there is, but it, only 10% of it is unique to the mid-age. It can happen through your whole life. It's a bit of a cliche. Okay, excellent. I feel happier already. What's up? Twitter time. Yeah! Come on! Twitter! 
We've been asked on Twitter, Carl, mm-hmm. a question about cats. Ah. And whether cats have midlife crises. No. Rude dude. Rude dude. Has asked us on Twitter, a not at all rude question. He's gone at Sleek Geeks and asked, any science behind cat purrs and well-being slash healing? Let's let's go back a step. A ca- cat purrs. How, how does a cat uh, we've only been able to discover that very recently. Really? By put, oh, there are all sorts of theories like it was turbulent flow happening in their veins, which somehow due to the unique anatomy of the cat mm. respiratory apparatus was amplified and that turned out to be rubbish. And it turns out that if you measure the electrical activity of the vocal cords, the vocal cords will start, will, will turn into a narrow V. They're like the letter V and they close right up. Mm-hmm. And because they're closing up, then the cat has difficulty in breathing in and breathing out. That increases the pressure when it's breathing out. There's air trapped in the lungs. It increases the pressure and then it suddenly relaxes this increased pressure and then that produces a sound which you then might maintain by the vocal cords vibrating at about 150 times a second. So there's an on and an off and an on and off, and then the on is about 10 to 15 milliseconds. The off is about 30 to 40 milliseconds. So it goes on, off, on, off. And the baby cat, the kitten as we call it, can purr with a mouthful of milk. So it can sort of breathe over the top of it. And it turns out just in general that uh, a cat, big or small, can either purr or raw, but not both. Okay. One or the other. And so we now have got a bit of a hint of why they of of how they do it, but we don't know why. Like they'll purr when they're happy, but they'll also purr when they're in pain and giving birth and being threatened. I mean, you can consider that a cat giving birth is in ecstatic happiness, but mm. I tend to think not. Um, <laughs> and Desmond Morris, the British zoologist, says that purring is related to friendship. So either they're happy and saying. I love you, Adam, I'm friendly, or mm. I'm in pain and giving birth and being ripped apart, uh, be friendly to me. So it's sort of like a human smile. You can smile when you're really happy or you can smile nervously when you're anxious. Okay, so we have a bit of an understanding now as to how cats produce what we call the purr. Even though we don't know the purpose. Oh, please. Of the, oh, sorry. Okay. Our, our Twitter correspondent, however, asked, is there any science behind the link between cat purrs and well-being and he- healing. I've, I've never heard of this, but what do some people claim that having a cat lying on your stomach going can can affect you physiologically? There, That is the claim, and you can even buy CDs of purring cats. Oh, great. They'll heal all of your ills, and they're mixed in with some pseudoscientific jargon about healing frequencies, and they'll say the word quantum, always good, and then some random numbers. And uh, here's an exact quote. The cat's purr mm-hmm. increases the efficiency of the circulatory system and so keeps the cat healthy. Zero proof for that. So powerful vibrations given to the feet of over older people can improve their balance, yes, but we're talking here not just a sort of a but a more of a thump, thump, thump. And so that's why it's good to have an impact sport as part of your daily routine. So you're getting those bumps through your system, which helps the osteoporosis go away and keep your balance a bit better. But just a straight purr that you're getting off your MP3 player, doubt it strongly. Okay, so cat purrs, not much in that. Regular physical exercise involves a bit of bumping, probably good for you. Probably good. Can I get a quick update on the latest of the following uh, well-being enhancers? Uh, Aromatherapy. Uh, I went to an aromatherapy lecture once. It turns out to be 
multi-level marketing or pyramid selling, to use the old-fashioned and illegal term. Okay. So they're saying next over the next few months we're going to release these products and they will have these characteristics and it's just straight pyramid selling. Crystals, if I'm not feeling great, just wave a crystal over my body, press a crystal against a part of me that's a little bit sore and let the natural energy and vibrational uh, frequency resonance of the crystal heal me. Uh, vomit, 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 complete crap. Okay. Sorry. Homeopathy. Now, the idea with homeopathy is you take something that makes you sick and dilute it and dilute the diluted amount and dilute again and by introducing a very small amount of the toxin into my system, it's small enough and diluted enough that my body can fight that and by doing that gets to fight much more of the flu virus or whatever it might be? Yes, in principle, because that is the principle of vaccines, Mm. except when they go to their full dilutions, you're looking at something like one atom per galaxy. So homeopathy, no. It's never been proven. Unfortunately, never been proven. I'd like it to work because it's got so few side effects. On the other hand, all the water that comes into you goes out and it must carry a memory of where it's been before. So maybe we're all having homeopathic medicines all the time. Auras? Can people detect and read the aura around me that gives off a photographic or perceptible image as to how my body's careering along down the health track? Uh, That was actually done as a test by James Randi, mm-hmm. where they got people who said, I can read auras and I can see that the aura extends a certain distance away from a per- person's body. Mm. And then they got the subjects who were supposedly generating these auras to stand on a stage and put cardboard cutouts in front of them and then maybe remove them or not. And so presumably the person who could see the aura would see the aura extending beyond the cardboard cutout. Aha. Uh-huh. Zero success. Same as random. Totally guessing. Oh, dear. Bummer. Bummer. Acupuncture? Um, Some people say it works. I tend to follow uh, Mark Chrislip on Quad uh, Quack Quack Watch, that beautiful uh, podcast, and reading what he reads when he directs me in that direction and following it up, and even studies in the New England Journal of Medicine, which he says, hey, how'd this get published? I read it and I think, you're, not, you're right. How'd they publish this crap? Overwhelmingly, zero proof for acupuncture. Maybe maybe a tiny, tiny modicum indistinguishable from the placebo effect. Yeah, now quickly on this, when it comes mm. to the efficacy of different practices, etc., what is the placebo effect? It comes from the Latin meaning, I shall please. And I ran into it one night when I was out at Nepean Hospital. And it was one of the few occasions on which I lied to a patient. Mm -hmm. And so I had this guy whose name was literally John, and there was a surgeon strike on, and I'd been there in the daytime, and he'd come in and he had the kidney pain, so we gave him vitamin P pethidine. He was lined up for surgery. We couldn't give him the surgery because the surgeons were on strike, so we're just sort of keeping him going along. Mm -hmm. Then uh, two nights later, I'm on by myself between midnight and dawn, a nurse and me, we're running casualty. Uh, We can call on help if we need it. And in through the door at two o'clock comes John. And he's got that walk, which means I'm in real pain, and the look on his face. I said, oh, John, how's it going, mate? And he said, not good, Carl. And so I said... Kidneys, he said, same again. So I, I, we didn't have to, I didn't want to waste his time mm-hmm. making go through the paperwork. So I said, look, we'll fill out the paperwork later. Let's just get you out of pain first because pain does not make you a better person. Mm-hmm. And so we got him onto the bed and I stabbed him and I had the line open and then the nurse came and whispered in my ear, Carl, we've run out of pethidine in casualty. I found some in Ward 25. Ooh. I'll do a runner. I'll be back in five minutes. 
And so there I am with this guy just rolling in pain on the bed. And then after about a minute, I thought, I can try the placebo experiment, totally mm-hmm. um, without any ethics approval whatsoever. Often and the th- best way to do it. And a sample size of one, so mm. it's not very good. And so I said, oh, well, John, it worked pretty well last time, didn't it? And he said, oh, yeah, yeah. And I said, oh, well, here we go. I said, here we go. I didn't say... I am administering <laughs> pethidine. No, no. No? And so I said, oh, here we go. And with a big show, I drew up some salt water and I injected the salt water mm. into him and if he said that didn't work, I'd say, oh, I was just clearing the line. We've got to make sure I've got a clear line. And as I injected the pethidine into him, literally on the tip of the needle, as it went in, he sort of went, oh, oh. And the pain fell off his face and his legs sort of straightened out and relaxed and his heart rate went from about 140 down to about 80 and then 70. And he's just lying there just in relaxation. So the placebo effect is where the body, having not been administered a treatment but believing it has been, mm. that can that process itself can have some restorative or positive effect, even though no n- nothing has been given to the patient. Nothing except salt water. And then the nurse came back with the pethidine. And I said to John, okay, um, we'll just finish up here. I gave him his first dose of pethidine. His body thought it had two doses and he, the bugger tried to drop dead on me. His heart rate went 60, 50, 40, 35, 30. And I'm looking at the nurse and she's looking at me and I've got the reverse of the Narcan ready to squirt into him at a moment's notice. And he goes 35, 30, 35, 36. And it gradually stabilises up around 42. He's alive, just. <laughs> Do we know yet? Because this is this is the important thing when we try and work out the efficacy of certain health treatments and all sorts of drugs and things yeah. like that. You have to test by giving some people the drug and other people other things, and you always have to take into account the potential mm. placebo effect. Do we know yet why the placebo effect works? No, whole bunch of theories, whole bunch of theories, including things like the uh, endogenous opiates in your own body and a whole bunch of theories involving brain activity. Basically, we're stumbling in the dark. We know it's real in 30% of patients on average once. But to try and do it time after time, you wouldn't get away with it. So, with so if John kept coming in every week and you kept giving him salt, salt water, his he, body would not be fooled by that into constantly thinking it's pethidine. Yeah, and, and so the nurse and I just looked at each other and what we're we going to do, what reverse it so we can wake him up so we can leave him in pain again. So we just kept a really close eye on him and one of us was beside him every moment until his heart rate got up into the 60s again and then we hand him over and he was just snoring away happily without pain. There you go. Oh, Thank scary you, story, though. Thank you very much, Dr. Oh, I don't know about you, but I'm going to go and take some pethidine. No, I'm not. Don't do that. All you need, whether it's a placebo effect or it actually changes you, all you need is the Sleep Geeks podcast.